today. America's cable news hosts become champions of authoritarianism. Why is it disloyal to side with Russia, but loyal to side with Ukraine? This is, um, uh, I would say, almost uh, strategic deception, which is distinct from disinformation. Rooting for Russia as it attacks democracy in Ukraine and in the U.S. I'm Liz Wall. This podcast explores the roots and rise of radicalization in America and what we can do to reverse it. Monica Richter is a researcher and analyst specializing in security, disinformation, and authoritarian influence. She's currently with Semantic Visions, an open source digital intelligence company. She's also worked with the European Union, developing public outreach campaigns to counter Russian information warfare. She has a master's in political science from the University of Oxford. Hi, Monica. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Um, So kind of want to start off by putting everything into context. The big news now is that Ukraine is surrounded by over 100,000 Russian troops along its border. So the situation is very tense. We don't know if, if and when Ukraine will be invaded. Is it going to be tomorrow? Will it be next week? Will it be next month? Will it be next year? It's kind of one of the token characteristics of Russia always keeping us on our feet, you know, trying to just muddy the waters on what their intentions really are. Um, But ever since 2014, there has been, in addition to kind of this ground war, uh, kinetic warfare, your traditional troops and tanks, they've also been um, implementing this strategy of an information warfare alongside more traditional means. Um, And so this has been proven to be a key strategy for Russia. And there's several fronts we've seen. They have a certain propaganda campaign, tailored messaging specifically for Russian citizens, uh, tailored messaging for the citizens, you know, within Ukraine. And then there is propaganda disinformation that is targeted towards Western audiences, so towards Americans, um, towards Europeans. So I want to ask you first about that. What is it that Russia, what is the narrative that Russia is pushing now um, when it comes to Western audiences? So uh, that's a great summary of how we got to this point. the disinformation uh, and information warfare strategy that we are seeing vis-a-vis the West uh, from from Russia really started in 2014 after the annexation of Crimea um, and the the invasion of Eastern Ukraine. Uh, And this became a a strategy uh, for the Russians to basically um, create as much um, uh, division and just informational chaos to prevent the West uh, from mounting a coherent response and deterring or imposing political costs um, on on the Kremlin uh, for uh, this incredible violation of the post-World War II uh, international and, and rules-based order. And what we're seeing right now is basically just an escalation of everything that we have seen to date since 2014. Um, and we see NATO, uh, and again, the, um, the structure of the post-World War II international rules-based order, 
um, as being at the um, center of the Kremlin's, uh, Kremlin's Western-oriented grievances. Um, so this is basically about Putin making, um, I mean, security demands uh, of the West that are essentially non-starters. Um, I mean, he is asking um, for NATO troops to be withdrawn to their pre-1997 levels uh, for the non-expansion of NATO, so a guarantee that Ukraine will never be invited to join, uh, and the non-deployment of, of strike systems near, um, near Russian borders. And fortunately, for the most part, um, the West and NATO have been quite united in refusing to um, uh, even contemplate these promises, uh, which were, in fact, articulated again, you know, as as non-starters. I mean, the Kremlin must know that they are not going to um, get these demands, um, but they are bidding very high, so to speak. Uh, and in fact, um, their, their framing of the entire situation, the escalation at Ukraine's um, border, uh, the military buildup there, um, I mean, that's all about bringing the West to the table. And they have succeeded in doing that. Um, and so I think that it's important to, to see it from that perspective um, and, uh, and to understand that, you know, the West is basically caught in this uh, perpetual trap of reacting to Russia and reacting to the Kremlin um, and, uh, and to, to its destabilization efforts, to its information warfare, uh, and to its, its constant aggression. We are not being proactive in pursuing deterrence. Um, we are meeting Russia where Russia wishes to be met. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is a strategic mistake. Yeah. Uh, there, and I'm going to start with something called uh, what some researchers have recommended when it comes to reporting on disinformation, because I think what a lot of media gets wrong is that, and there's empirical evidence on this, even if something's false, if it's repeated over and over and over again, it starts to develop, um, you know, it starts to take on a life of its own. It starts to become amplified. People start to believe it, like the big lie, for example. Um, so Russia right now, we should just say off the bat that in this situation, as you described, Russia is the clear aggressor because they have mobilized their troops. They have surrounded Ukraine. Um, and now they are trying to spread this false narrative, whether it's online or through their state television stations. The researchers at DHS's Office of Intelligence and Analysis have sorted through really an avalanche of disinformation produced by Russian state media groups, and they found hundreds of these articles and posts falsely claiming Russia has no intent to invade Ukraine and that the West fabricated the invasion story as an excuse for its own military buildup. Their narrative seems to be that they're blaming it on the, the West. They're blaming it on the U.S. They're blaming it on NATO. They're saying that we are the instigators, essentially, that the West is causing this conflict. And now Russia is being dragged into it. They have to respond. This is They have nothing to do with this, but the West is starting the whole thing. And now they're going to be forced to respond, which is which is nonsense. It's, it's not true. But this is part of Putin's kind of long-running complex disinformation campaign to create chaos and to create confusion. Here's where I would say that actually what we are seeing um, 
now vis-a-vis NATO is actually, it goes beyond um, disinformation as such, which is primarily about causing um, causing chaos and confusion, um, um, destabilizing your target. This is, um, uh, I would say, almost uh, strategic deception, which is distinct from disinformation in that it is about, and again, a, a longstanding element of, of the uh, Russian playbook, um, strategic deception um, is is basically about um, manipulating and manufacturing um, uh, a, a narrative and a belief um, in your in your target that basically prevents them from acting in their own self interest, and rather um, encourages them to uh, act in your self interest. Um, and this is, uh, I think, exactly what we are seeing with respect to um, the the constant kind of. Um, 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 narrative of victimhood about the Western uh, post-Cold uh, post War um, uh, security architecture, and, and, and namely NATO. Um, Russia has been um, incredibly adamant and in, in basically claiming, you know, for years that uh, there had been a promise to not enlarge NATO. I think what's taken out of this is what about these countries that are being invaded? Well, you know, these other countries have agency. It's not that the U.S. is taking over these countries, the Baltic states, for example, very much like being part of NATO. They see it as part of uh, their own security, integral to their own security. So um, I think that's really important to highlight is that, you know, what does Ukraine want? It's not it's not about it's not about NATO taking over Ukraine because it's not. That's just like not a thing. Um but I think that's important to highlight the agency of these countries that are kind of caught in the crosshairs of, of, uh, of, of their neighbor. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And in fact, you know, when we talk about um, NATO expansion in the 1990s, or in fact, when Russia talks about NATO expansion in the 1990s as having been um, an offensive maneuver, um, basically by the West to quote unquote encircle Russia, which is of course ridiculous if you actually look at a map of Russia and you see, you know, where um, uh, NATO borders are uh, respective to everything else. Um, it's it's ridiculous. But in the 90s, um, the the post-communist, um, you know, Soviet satellite states uh, basically launched a very powerful um, moral appeal, actually led by um, former dissident and then later Czech president Václav Havel, um, as well as others, including Lech Wałęsa in Poland. Uh, and they really uh, had to convince NATO and the, the West, uh, Western Europe and the United States to let them into NATO. And it was precisely what you just said. It's about um, um, national self-determination. These countries recognized the threat from the East um, and they they knew that in order to um, um, safeguard their newfound independence, that they needed to be part of a defensive um, military alliance. And what confirms that this was in fact a you know um, um, legitimate calculus is the fact that Ukraine, which in um, I mean Ukraine now has been um, um, non-aligned or, or neutral for thirty years. In 1994, um, this was signed in the Budapest Memorandum, where um, Ukraine basically um, gave up its nuclear weapons and its security was guaranteed by um, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. 
um, and look look where that has um, look where that has led us. Look at um, um, look at the the position that Ukraine now finds itself in, with um, um, you know a, a quasi frozen conflict in in the Donbass in the east, um, and uh, a portion of its territory annexed by. Um, Russia, it's very problematic. And that's one thing that I'll just add frustrates me quite a bit about um, U.S. progressives who, um, you know, um, um, really believe in in sort of the importance of avoiding war at, at all costs. Um, but their approach to anti-imperialism uh, is really U.S. centric, right? They recognize um, only U.S. imperialism um, as a problem for international security. Um, and they completely ignore the imperialism of um, other countries, and namely of um, authoritarian countries like mm-hmm. Russia, um, like China. And in so doing, they really sacrifice these small countries um, that have, um, you know, thanks to their, you know, geography and history, um, you know, had very, very bad luck um, and now wish to join the Western fold, wish to become um, uh, democracies. They are sacrificing um, these countries instead, um, you know, to to authoritarians. Becoming apologists for authoritarianism, um, where they're excusing it, um, not really pushing for any accountability. Um, and I want to talk about this a little bit more because I think it's uh, it highlights how some people can be unwittingly duped and become mouthpieces of Russian propaganda? Because what being anti-war, of course, sounds really uh, worthy, uh, a worthy cause and and lofty and something to aspire to. However, somebody like Len Greenwald, (laughs) who is just anti-war, supposedly, supposedly anti-war, but he tends to cross into the (laughs) pro-authoritarian region. Um, So, I want to talk about that, um, how Russia can, in this situation, um, we've seen when it comes to the elections and dividing democracy within the U.S., the way that they've amplified far-right voices that are contesting the election um, that are um, January 6th, essentially, all of that, stirring that pot. In fact, Fox News host Tucker Carlson here sounds indistinguishable from Russian state media. Why is it disloyal to side with Russia, but loyal to side with Ukraine? They're both foreign countries that don't care anything about the United States. However, on the other side, we have um, the amplification and co-opting of narratives of the left. Can you talk about how that that manifests? For example, Randomly, Ben and Jerry's kind of gone into this conversation, um, how they take those voices on the left and use that and weaponize those voices to further Russian interests. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one very important point is that it is only a very recent development, really, in in the kind of post-Trump years that we have begun to um, um, see a convergence between, um, the right and the far right or the populist right, um, and, um, um, the Kremlin and it's, and it's, uh, disinformation, particularly as regards these, 
um, you know, nationalist um, and, and orthodox narratives that focus on, um, you know, traditional values and pushing back against um, the encroachment of progressivism, for example, as regards minority rights, um, um, migration and, and LGBT rights and so forth. Um, which, by the way, is a very um, also sophisticated campaign by the Kremlin to um, create the image um, that is appealing um, to these populist right actors in the West. Because, in fact, if you um, look at religiosity um, or uh, church attendance in Russia or abortion rates, you'll discover very quickly that it is far from that, um, um, you know, conservative ideal uh, that a lot of these that a lot of these people hold. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that, in fact, during the Cold War, um, uh, it was the left in the West uh, that was always the essential target um, or core demographic uh, of uh, of the Soviet Union's um, co-optation efforts. Uh, it was, uh, it was the, um, you know, socialism or communism inclined, um, again, anti-imperial crowd, um, that was the staple, uh, of, of, um, the Soviet unions or, uh, Moscow's, uh, influence efforts. And that, has changed for the reasons that I said earlier, um, you know, with, with now the um, um, rise of the populist right. But we, we should remember this history and the fact that there are um, definitely um, uh, strands of, of belief on the left that lend themselves to um, exploitation uh, as well. The, the area in which the left and the right are united in this regard is where they tend towards um, anti-establishmentarianism, right? Mm -hmm. um, the belief that the system is broken uh, or that the status quo needs to be, you know, revolutionarily changed uh, and that the West um, and Western democracy and its institutions as they currently exist um, actually... Um, are are harmful to um, you know large portions uh, of of the population, uh, and that they need to be fundamentally overhauled. Uh, and it's that it's that grievance that is also picked up um, very very adeptly. Or there is agreement to be found between those on um, the the populist left and on the populist right. You know, you can look at people like Tulsi Gabbard, for example, right, who is, um, um, you know, a, a Democrat um, uh, or someone like Mehdi Hassan, who also came out, you know, uh, uh, against any form of U.S. intervention in Ukraine. Uh, and as you said, you know, Glenn Greenwald, who I mean, honestly, no comment there. Um, <laughs> no comment. I hear you. Um, I hear you. Um, but but you know these people are far you know more adjacent um, to uh, the likes of you know Josh Hawley um, or or these other um, um, you know right wing um, populists uh, and and really malign actors um, than they are to uh, to the center um, to to those who understand that the democracy that that we have built is by no means perfect, but it does remain um, um, the the best that that history and humankind has ever created. 
um, and that there is a lot that can be improved upon um, without uh, without tearing it down. And tearing it down is precisely what what authoritarian kleptocrats like Putin want more than anything. I mean, he's framing the current crisis around NATO, and there are absolutely um, historical um, um, grievances that illegitimate grievances, but grievances nonetheless that that um, um, the the uh, Russian elite has with NATO. But more fundamentally, that all of this, everything that is now happening, is about creating a world um, in which kleptocrats and authoritarians can act with impunity, uh, and there is no one to hold them back um, from uh, aggressing against whomever they please and um, um, you know stealing stealing from their from their own people the far right and the and the far left you know when they go to the extremes if you think of it like a circle where they converge is this kind of populism and also a sympathy or acceptance of authoritarianism so for those that you know value democracy and imperfect democracy and it certainly is you know, we certainly should be working to improve, uh, you know, the state of our democracy. However, I think where we need to be careful is when you fall victim to disinformation, which aims to, which appeals to kind of that anti-system, um, anti-establishment, um, you know, that there's a reason why we see those kinds of narratives start to veer into the conspiracy, conspiracy theory territory. And that really does appeal to the, you know, populist impulses and um, opens the door to um, authoritarianism. So I think a lot of people that are concerned about democracy right now and trying to preserve it um, should be careful about the types of um messages that they consume, that they um, internalize, and think about, you know, wh what that means for um, for our democracy and how we might, especially in this very complex new media environment online. And that's the next thing I wanted to ask you about um, for, you know, well-meaning centrists or well-meaning liberals or well-meaning, um, you know, people that don't buy into the big lie uh, are on the right. Um, when they're trying to navigate the social media and the digital world, the new media environment, what are some things to look out for if they don't want to fall victim to disinformation and propaganda campaigns uh, that are mobilized by authoritarians? Yeah, so I mean, I think the the main advice that I would give, and I'm a hypocrite for saying so because I'm on social media, but it would be uh, get off social media uh, because um, um, I mean the the digital um, infrastructure uh, of of social media um, uh, or the social internet, if you will, um, is fundamentally about um, um, creating polarization, polarization as a byproduct of, um, social media companies, Facebook or Meta in particular, um, uh, of trying to keep us, uh, on, on the platform, um, for as long as possible, um, because we are, we are the product, our data, our attention, 
that is the product that they are selling to advertisers. This is, I mean, it's an, it's, it's a very, very deep seated problem that, that really goes again to the the very foundations of our digital infrastructure. Monica, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. 